0: I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and changemakers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. If you're enjoying the podcast, then you might want to check out some of the other things I'm working on behind the scenes. I put out a weekly newsletter called Momentum Monday, which is just a quick synthesis of everything I've been reading, listening to, and watching during the week. I also do a once-a-month deep dive called The Distillery, which is a long-form distillation on someone whose thinking has greatly impacted me. You can check out past distillations of Josh Waitzkin, Yen Liao, and Nick Konis, and everything else we're putting on at whatgotyouthere.com. Today, I am sitting down with Keith Ferrazzi, who's a best-selling author, he's an award-winning speaker, he's an investor, philanthropist, and he's an executive coach who helps teams transform their enterprises. He also is the founder and chairman of Ferrazzi Greenlight, and it's actually an applied research institute, which I love, right? Like, he understands what needs to get done within companies because he's done the research. And he also coaches executive teams in top organizations to achieve that transformative type outcome that we're looking for. And he does this by certain concepts that he's uncover, such as harnessing radical adaptability and co-elevation, both of which we talk about on this episode. But I just appreciate the work that Keith's done to understand the importance of partnerships and other people in transforming our lives and our organizations. And you might also remember Keith from some of his earlier work. He, he was the author of the, the famous book, Never Eat Alone, which is exceptional. And he also has a new book out now, Competing in the New World of Work, How Radical Adaptability Separates the Best from the Rest. So enjoy this conversation with Keith Ferrazzi. I have to tell you about the product I'm obsessed with right now. And when I say obsessed, I mean it. I am honestly obsessed and using this continually. So this is my Brava smart oven. So I actually used a Brava at a friend's house a few weeks ago, and after using it, I said I have to reach out to the team at Brava and bring them on as a partner of the podcast because of how much I love my Brava smart oven. So Brava is the world's fastest and most advanced smart oven that cooks with the power of light. So I had no idea about this, but cooking with light is actually two to four times faster than any other cooking technology. So being a busy father with two kids, I need something that's going to cook delicious, healthy meals, is really fast and super convenient. And my Brava checks the box on all three of those. Just last night, I whipped up a mouth-watering salmon. You know, one of the ones with the, the crispy, flaky outside, but then juicy, tender inside. And I also had a side of broccoli and butternut squash. And I cooked this all to perfection at the same time. It doesn't matter if it's breakfast, dinner, dessert. My Brava takes care of it all. So when I said it was fast and convenient, the team at Brava honestly knocked this out of the park. Imagine cooking your entire meal just with the press of a button. All you do is select what you're cooking, load your tray, and press the green button. They have thousands of fully automated recipes created by professional chefs, so your meal is perfect every single time. And a really crazy part, Bravo regularly updates with new recipes and cooking modes all for free. There really isn't a more convenient and impressive cooking experience I've ever had. Cook crispy, bubbly pizza in 10 minutes, eggs and toast at the same time. You can even do a tray of roasted potatoes in 15 minutes, all with zero preheating. And one really fun thing my, my kids love watching this is you can actually watch your food cook on the Brava app, which is just really fun. It's like having an automated sous chef right at your side. So if you want to start having healthier, better meals, check out brava.com and make sure to enter code What Got You There at Checkoff for $200 off. Yes, $200 off. That's www.brava.com, and at checkout, enter code What got you There. If you're someone who's looking to join a hypergrowth company that's global and 100% remote, then you might want to listen up and hear all about the exciting job opportunities at Clipboard Health. Most of us have known someone who never got the healthcare they needed, you know, one of those people who fell through the cracks. That's because America's hospitals are short-staffed. They don't have enough nurses, so patients don't get the care they deserve. I've personally had family members not get the care they deserve, which is why I appreciate and care so much about what Clipboard Health is doing. Clipboard Health matches nurses with hospitals and nursing homes so that patients get the care they need and nurses find the work they want. Clipboard Health is fixing a broken healthcare staffing marketplace, and they're also scaling a hyper-growth business at the exact same time. Clipboard Health is a Silicon Valley unicorn, and they're looking for people to join their mission to fix staffing in healthcare and give nurses more opportunities. Clipboard Health is looking for great software engineers, product managers, and operations leaders to join them today. They're global, and remember, they're 100% remote, so no matter where you live in the U.S. or the world, they want to talk to you. You can check out great opportunities at clipboardhealth.com forward slash WGYT. That's clipboardhealth.com forward slash W-G-Y-T. Are you looking for a delicious and healthy nutrition bar that is keto-friendly, low-sugar, and protein-infused? If so, look no further than New School Snacks, who's reinventing the low-sugar snacking revolution. Now, for me, health is one of the biggest things I think about, and eliminating the sugar from my diet is crucial, and that's why I love New School Snacks. So if you're one of those people who also want to change the way you approach nutrition and snacking, then head to NewSchoolSnacks.com for great deals on their collagen bar loaded with healthy fats from MCT oil, and while you're there, pick up one of their brand new mouth-watering French Toast Crunch Bars. That's NewSchoolSnacks.com. Keith, welcome to what got you there. How are you doing today? Sean, I'm excited about this. It's going to yeah. be a lot of fun. Yeah, it's great to see you. I, I want to dive in, in in a bit of your backstory first, and I would love to know, why is it so essential or what can you get? What is the benefit of showing 30, uh, 30 minutes early to the golf course?
1: Huh. Wow, you're really taking me back. Um, so, you know, I grew up uh, a poor kid in Pittsburgh in the 70s when the steel industry was crashing. My old man was an unemployed steel worker. My mom was a cleaning lady and um, I had to go work at the local country club uh, because my 20 bucks that I made at that country club schlepping uh, golf uh, golf clubs around all day uh, was exactly the same. amount My mom was working cleaning houses. So that was meaningful cash to the, to the house. Um, And I remember my dad used to say to me, Keith show up at the golf course half an hour early. I'm like pops, there's nobody there. Like there's no caddies, there's no golfers. It's useless. And he would say it again, show up the golf course half an hour early. When he would repeat, I, I, I used to call that immigrant Tourette's. He'd just say shit that I was like, I don't understand it, but I'm not going to get him off of it. So fine. I show up at the golf course and I'm walking around, I'm bored. I'm walking on the golf course a little bit. And I would notice where the pins were placed, like, you know, front of the back of the, of the greens. Um, I'd see how the greens were cut if they were cut that morning. So I knew how to So it was very interesting that there was this woman named Mrs. Poland. You probably didn't expect all of this. But there was this woman, Mrs. Poland, who was the best woman golfer at the country club. And um, as we were walking around, uh, she was taking, like, conversational personal interest in me. What, you know, tell me what, you know, what, what's up with you. What do you want to do with your life, et cetera. I was so shy and didn't feel like rich people. And rich people to me, their kids tease me at school for you know, not having the right kind of clothes and stuff. So I just wanted to keep my head down and get a good job done, get my 20 bucks. But what was very interesting about Mrs. Poland is she made a real investment in me because um, by showing up at the golf course a half an hour early, I actually was a better caddy. You know, I had insight and, and information that other kids didn't have about, you know, the pins placement and other things, but also I had a hustle because I needed that 20 bucks and her investment in me, uh, led her to be more curious in me. And that was really a, that was a tipping point of my life because Mrs. Poland ultimately said, Keith, I'm serious. Tell me what you want to do with your life. I said, well, my dad says, if I study real hard, and work real hard, I can do anything. I could be president of the United States. Now, I really did want to be president of the United States. That's what immigrant kids, you know, are told by their parents. And um, what was really powerful about that was within a week, she had the local congressman in her force, a guy named Congressman Murtha. And she had told this guy that. And he took me under his wing. And he told me I should get involved in speech and debate in high school. He told me that if I needed to study or needed access to his congressional library, that uh, I'm happy to come up to his office and work out of there. Um, and it was, a, it was a game changer for me. I ended up going on and winning uh, the United States National Speech and Debate Tournament, which was my ticket into Yale University. And um, all of that, because I showed up at the golf course a half an hour early. Now, what we have to recognize is that the, the doors of opportunity are opened by others. Doors of opportunity are opened by others. And if you don't show up, and the reason Mrs. Poland did all that stuff for me Because I took two strokes off her golf score. People show up for you because you're deeply generous to them. And that's what showing up at the golf course half an hour early means. So as you think about the people in your life that are critical to you, how are you showing up at the golf course a half of an hour early for them?
0: Keith, I love that story. One thing I'm really intrigued by is obviously those people have to open up the doors for you. So you have to be of service to them so that they even do that. But then you have to have the ability to see that, you know what, this door is being opened for me. Were you aware at that young age exactly what was going on in all this, or were you just kind of, oh, this is a cool opportunity. Let me take this.
1: I think I got lucky, you know, and that's when, you know, one, so the new book research that we're here to talk about, um. We had 2,000 executives during the pandemic crowdsourcing the best practices for how do we, how do we lead organizations in a radically volatile world that we're in today. And the, one of the very first things I noticed is how do you curate foresight? How do you look around corners? How do you see opportunity? How do you see risk? And there's a chapter in the book about this. And what I have really found was I, you know I didn't see that at the time. But my dad helped me become aware that Mrs. Poland's invitation was a powerful one. Um, other caddies did when they heard me report the story when I came back. And what I want you to realize as a leader is you do not have to have the foresight and the wisdom and the vision of a Steve Jobs. You have to crowdsource that through relationships and having a community around you. And you have to be open enough to hear it, humble enough. To invite it, and at the same time, um, make sure that you curate the group so that you get the insight. So one of the things that I saw during the peak of the pandemic were executives who hosted monthly meetings where people came, as many people as they wanted, not just their directs team, but broader individuals. And executives would say, what risks are you seeing that we might not be seeing? What opportunities for growth are you seeing that we might not be seeing? pushed buttons, sent people into Google, uh, sent people into breakout rooms, opened Google Docs, had the entire organization weighing in on risk and opportunity management. What a beautiful way to lead your life by curating uh, a, a, an inclusive group of individuals um, looking around corners. Mm-hmm. So no, I didn't get it when I was a kid by myself, but you don't have to do anything by yourself. That's what your team's for.
0: Yeah. I'm really included, just interested in that inclusive element, right? Like to be a great leader, you have to empower those that are working with you. And, and I'm wondering for people in, that, in those organizations where they don't feel even comfortable being able to speak up, is there anything you discovered during this pandemic that could just shed some light on both the leaders who are in those organizations and then people just so they can even develop that ability to speak up and collaborate together?
1: There's, there's an entire chapter on collaboration and inclusion. And one of the words that I had to create in order to describe what I was seeing in this research was a word called co-elevation. The teams that thrived not only had a commitment to winning in in the the beginning, not only had a commitment to survival, but they had a commitment to winning and they had a commitment to each other. They they had an an aligned North Star. And then they said, we're committed to this and we're committed to getting each other there. We're all going to cross over the finish line together, and that was so powerful. And by the way, you know, Stanley McChrystal is a buddy of mine, and he's the one that often you know helps me help me first understand that when he's like, "We don't the helicopter doesn't take off until every soldier's on, you know, dead or alive. We don't leave anybody behind." And that's what you have to curate as a leader. It's you know what I do for a living is my organization coaches executive teams. That's what we do: coach executive teams, and um, what I what I realized is that we need a new social contract. And it's the social contract that I saw existing in the teams that were thriving and surviving and those that did not, which is this social contract where not only are you a great leader, but you've created a great team. And a great team isn't a group of individuals doing their jobs. It's a team that is committed to each other's success and and they're committed to coaching each other as well. So that social contract of co-elevation is the earmark of the tipping point between a mediocre team that has a great leader. A great set of individuals with a great leader is not a great team. Hmm. A great team has to be focused on being a great team. And in sports, I'm sure you you probably can think of some amazing examples of that. But, you know, some often in, in Europe, people talk about the, the, the Real Madrid, you know, um, team that was a group of successful individuals that had not gotten their shit together as a team, right? Hmm. Um, Jordan, you know, he they didn't start winning until he learned to pass the ball, and so that's the that's the
0: difference. And we need to be focusing on the team, not just the individuals. Yeah, I mean it's one of those hidden variables, right? I mean, you you might have the best team on paper, but if that team isn't going after the same vision, the same purpose, and gelling together, I mean, there's going to be dysfunction. There, there's no way about that. I'm so tr- intrigued.
1: Well, again, let me just let me just pause for this. Um, there's you know dysfunction is one thing. Of course, people try to stamp that out but go to the level where the team owns each other's success, mm. right? We have a diagnostic that we do for high-performing teams. And some of the questions are things like, will we challenge each other in the room when it's risky to do so? Right. That's that's the kind of level that we're talking about here. Yeah. But anyway, go ahead.
0: No, 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 no. Let's go there for a second because I'm so intrigued. I mean, you've spent so many thousands and thousands of hours with a ton of different teams. When you first walk into the room, like – what's Keith's radar looking for? Like what are some of the early questions you're asking just to, just to catch up to speed with them?
1: Well, the first thing I'm looking for is candor, Hmm. how much transparency. So before I walk into the room, I've talked to all members of the team and I know, and I'm always interested in hearing when people say, well, this is confidential, right? I'm like, okay, great. I get it. You know? And yes, yes, it is. But why, why? I mean, why is it confidential? If your information, you know, back, we're tribal animals. Back in the day, if you were a member of a tribe and one of you saw, heard something rustling in the bush, right, that could have been a danger to the tribe, you said something, right? But why is it in our many tribes of teams today that we have perspectives of risk, um, places where we think we're off the rails, people were places where we think we're falling behind? And what do we do? We whisper it behind each other's backs to about each other. Bullshit. Unacceptable. Un- underperforming, low-grade low professional behavior. And that's part of what I do. Very early on, I'm the one that comes into the team. I'm like, you know what? Look, look at where you are. I'm just going to state. I know because I've interviewed all of you <clears throat> that you're not telling each other the truth. Now, you tell me. Is that high-grade or low-grade professional behavior? It's your behavior. You define it. Put a label on it. High-grade or low-grade. And, you know, usually that's like, oh, fuck, that's like the first introduction to keep for us.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm sure that's a wake-up call for a lot of people. What what, what I'm so intrigued by, even, is not only have have you developed a research institute, I mean, you mentioned interviewing 2,000 leaders during this pandemic to be able to write this latest book. How the hell do you go from a poor son Mm -hmm. of a steelworker in Pittsburgh, youngest chief marketing officer in the Fortune 500, to everything you've done with your books, the research institute and, and coaching. Like, looking back, I mean, could you have foreseen that happening? Was there this belief then? Or was this completely unseen? Oh,
1: remember, I was the kid that thought he was gonna be president of the United States. <laughs> Here we go.
0: I, I'm unfortunately a gross
1: <laughs> underachiever. Um, and, and the reality is that, you know, I've, I've, I don't think I'll ever be satisfied with the footprint that I put on the planet, um, I feel like we're all put on this planet as as gifts, and our job is to maximize that gift in service of the world and service of others around us and whether that doesn't mean that I don't deeply respect the contribution of the single mom who's just focused on raising that child I mean that is beautiful and that's a personal commitment for me I want to make the biggest ripple effect that I possibly can you know this morning I was on the phone with thirty unicorns and soonicorns, meaning soon to become unicorns, um, in Latin America, right? I mean, I was coaching that group of executives in a in a roundtable format of thirty, and we were making a commitment to go on a journey to transform what human capital looks like in Latin America. My dear friend Tony Shea passed away um, during the pandemic and a tragic death. If anybody knows of, of Tony Shea from Zappos. And I started in my foundation, I started the Tony Shea Award, um, recognizing, finding and rewarding uh, leaders who want to crack the code of what human capital elevation is in organizations like Tony was trying to do. So I don't know. I'm just voracious um, and I'll never stop. And I'll probably, and I'm working on this uh, in my own therapy and coaching, but I'll probably never be satisfied.
0: Hmm. Talking about that voracious nature, it's funny, like one of the the key things you hit on in the book is around radical adaptability, and we're going to hit on that around the organization. But you seem to me like that's been a through line throughout your career, how radically adaptable you've been. I mean, is that something you had even back when when you were on the golf course, or is that something you cultivated over time?
1: You know, and it's interesting, we start this book uh, competing in the new world of work. And I know we've got in the show notes, you can go and get it at at radicallyadapt.com. Got a video series for you, et cetera. I love the way we start the book. It starts at Burning Man. And so I'm I'm studying the the high performing teams during the pandemic. And we crowdsourced the best practices of these teams into one codified research body that Harvard says is the most, most impressive body of research they've seen come out of the pandemic. And the number one pick of, of a book coming out of the pandemic. Um, and, and and I'm a burner. I've been a Burning Man for many, many years, uh, 16 years. And um, I realized I'm not going to go to Burning Man that year, you know, 2020. And, um, and I was like, wow. And I just started thinking about it. And I realized the correlation. What happens at Burning Man? what happens when you take 60,000 people and put them in the desert in some of the scorching heat of the day and some of the lowest freezing cold of the night with no resources or water. Right. And I've, I've got plenty of friends who've done this. I've never had the courage where they show up at burning man with nothing but a ticket mm-hmm. and the clothes in the back. And by the time they are in the middle of burning man, they've got a tent They've got resources, they've got friends, they've got extra clothes, they've got water, they've got food, because what happens is the, they say the playa will provide, and that's the desert, but the playa doesn't provide, the community does. In crisis, some of what happens is we bond together as a community. We bond together like we've never bonded before to survive and to create and to, and to grow. And that's what happened during the pandemic for those who allowed it to occur. Some people got fractured and frustrated and fearful, and others came together as a tribe to, to survive and thrive. And I even created that word co-elevation, right? that sense of going higher together um, when I saw that, that emerge, both at Burning Man and uh, in, the, in the most successful teams during the pandemic. And the question yeah. is, how do, we, how do we build that?
0: You just mentioned that I, I was listening to an interview yesterday, and I heard this line, and it was, "You're in trouble, brother. I'm in trouble." And it's it's like so true, right? It's like when when we're forged together and going through those tough times, it's like those great teams that, that bonded, they really do step up there.
1: But, but but it does require a social contract shift because most of us are are you know in a world where survival is not at stake, we are taking care of ourselves. We we show up as tribes of one. And we need to build the team. And then that team needs to make a conscious, like I said at the beginning, when I walk into a team, my job is to get them to make a conscious recognition that we need to shift our social contract. We used to have a social contract. We used to talk great each other's backs. We used to maximize for our own performance. Uh, we used to hoard resources because we thought we need them. And when another person is, is in need of them and all of that is a great leadership if you can shift that social contract.
0: How hard is that to shift?
1: Well, there's uh, my, uh, one of the things I've studied over the years is high performing uh, groups that may not be business groups. So I've studied AA. Um, and what I found in AA was a, some wonderful wisdom on how people come together to literally take each other out of the gutter and lift each other up um, to a rejuvenated you know, place in society. And there's a wonderful phrase that says, you don't Think your way to a new way of acting. You act your way to a new way of thinking. You don't think your way to a new way of acting. You act your way to a new way of thinking. So to change a social contract, it's not about, it, you know, yeah, you can talk about it. The mindset and the, is a conversation. The culture is a conversation. But I've been in so, so, so many organizations where they have these cultural norms that are on the wall, and they're bullshit, right? They're just bullshit. First thing I always do is I pull up people's cultural norms and I do an anonymous survey, number by each one, scale of zero to five, you know, on this, this cultural norm. Do we actually practice it or not? And you just see the hypocrisy of it. So talking about shit is useless. Practicing is what matters. So what I instantly do is I start introducing new practices to the team, and the practice creates the social contract. So, for instance, um, you know, I saw Unilever um, in the in the pandemic deciding to crowdsource growth opportunities. I saw IT organizations crowdsourcing technology risk. And what they did was they called their people together and they said, "Um, all right, everybody, in the next six months, what's going to bite us in the ass? Right? Or in the next week, some of these instances, like when I was coaching Delta Airlines team going into the pandemic, it was like daily, right? What what do we have to worry about? We had lost 90% of our revenue, what the hell? so you ask a large group of people, what are the risks? Go into breakout rooms, right? Push a button, everybody goes into a breakout room. Everybody opens a Google Doc and you start writing, what are the risks? Come back into the room, collect that information. Now, if you had done that in a meeting, in a, in a, in a meeting without a breakout room, you would have heard crickets or a couple of ideas. A simple act of going to a breakout room increases psychological safety. And, and it's and, and with the open Google Doc, it squeezes the insight and makes the organization much more inclusive of getting the answers to the, to the questions. So in a hybrid world, we can fundamentally reboot the innovation and the inclusiveness and the bold ideas that come in um, that we were able to do before. And I saw that. And that's 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 there's a chapter in the book. It's the second chapter in the book. It's all about how do you embrace radical innovation? through inclusion and collaboration in ways we've never thought of before.
0: Hmm. No, I love that. One of the things you're hitting on there is just being able to to see around corners, you know, plan for the future. You had a great chapter on active foresight there, which which I I love that concept and that term. Uh, The way I always picture this is like as a leader, you got to zoom out, right? And then you got to zoom in on those details. I am wondering, because one of the things I struggle with is is how do you balance that? I know there's no perfect answer here, but like thinking about the future, planning ahead, but then getting done the work that needs to get done today.
1: Yeah. So um, once again, I think that foresight looking around corners shouldn't be the purveyance of a single leader.
0: Hmm.
1: It should be crowdsourced. And that's what we saw. Um, so the, the example in the book, in the chapter called Foresight, the example in the book came from a gentleman named Rick Ambrose. There were so many organizations that had operations in China that on March 13th in the United States were caught on their heels like every other company. What the hell? Yet Rick Ambrose, who was, didn't, you know, he was the president of a division of Lockheed Aerospace that didn't have operations in China, yet he went fully virtual in February. Because in December, he always held space on his executive team meeting for the group to weigh in on where risk was, where opportunities were. He allocated to different members of his team different lenses to look at that and to curate that um, and it was brilliant because somebody saw a blog about the, this virus in China that raised their hand. Um, they decided that they you know, pull, put it into an assessment meeting, separate meeting offline, come back in January, and they realized the, the, the writing was on the wall and they went fully virtual in February. I mean, that's extraordinary. Um, so imagine if you crowdsource growth uh, potential and opportunity and you crowdsource risk more readily on, a, on an ongoing basis. What a simple, elegant process to always be looking around corners. So that's the kind of thing, Like in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the crisis, um, we were all practicing what I call crisis agile. We were more attentive to information because it was changing so quickly. We weren't just heads down getting our jobs done. We were always looking around, What's what's next, what's next? I want us always to be doing that right? And then, we, and then we'd assess it quickly and then we'd act on it quickly and we'd pivot as needed. We did that constantly. Why lose that muscle memory, hmm. right? And so there's two chapters in the book, one around foresight and the other one around agility that really show how do you bring that sustainable process into your teams?
0: One of the interesting things that, that just seems to be popping up here is around insights. But what I'm intrigued most about is these insights they're coming from different places, right? Like you mentioned going to Burning Man and having this almost like, okay, aha type moment. And then even tapping in to the collective resource of the team. I, I, I don't know, is this something you've always done or did the, the way you started to change during the no, pandemic?
1: No, I learned a lot um, during the pandemic. Well, first of all, yes, I've always done this to some extent. Um, I've recognized, if you look at my very first book, uh, Never Eat Alone, Never Eat Alone made Alone made people recognize that your life and the doors that are open in your life happen through cultivating a broad and a rich network, right? So I've always recognized that broad networks, statistically speaking, it's not the depth of a network that defines your success. It's the breadth. Because no matter where you go and however you pivot, the ability to open multiple doors at some level is very important. If you're just deep in one area of your network, you're, you're at risk with where we're shifting landscapes, right? You're at risk. So I realized that back then. And then when I started coaching teams, I realized that I needed to keep, keep the, keep, teach the team to what I call team out. The team needs to not look at itself as a team of people who report to somebody. The team has to think of themselves as who is it that we need to get the job done? Now that becomes my team. Forget an org chart. It's useless. I have no, no reverence for org charts. I'm working across silos or outside of organizations. I mean, it was so funny. Uh, I don't know if you know um, Peter Diamandis. Mm-hmm. Peter's one of my best friends for years. But he and I teamed up big time during the pandemic in so many different ways. And it was so easy. You know, hi, you know, I don't know why we didn't do it in the past. We could have. But we always had hybrid engagement like we're doing right here. We always had this availability to us. And we didn't take advantage of it.
0: Yeah. I mean, you mentioned Peter Diamandis. I know someone else who, who's in the little triangle of the three of you is Tony Robbins. And it was like the three of yeah. you all actively played offense during that time where so many people sat and back with each their- other.
1: Yeah. With each other. Like we all were all partners and invested in, a, in, a, in, in, in companies together over the holidays. And it was interesting. Like you literally, and we did it asynchronously. Like Tony's a pretty busy guy, but between me, Tony, and Peter, we're constantly voice texting each other. So we're basically having a, a running meeting with each other all the time. It doesn't have to be scheduled on anyone's calendar. That was another big thing we learned, that there were myths in the way we worked that need to be rebooted. One of the myths in the way we worked was we used to think that that collaboration started with a meeting. So if I wanted to collaborate with Tony and Peter uh, on Peter and Tony's um, you know company, whether it's Fountain Life or... Or, vaccinity, or one of the companies they have, we wanted to partner together. Let's get a meeting. No, let's just start an asynchronous dialogue. And we were able to achieve so much in this running asynchronous, asynchronous meaning not at the same place at the same time, right? But remotely. And it was amazing how much we could collaborate on so many different things. In fact, you know, they just launched their book, their book hit number one. They're helping promote my book. And we didn't have to have a meeting about that. We've been doing this
0: asynchronously. So how do you do that as part of a collaborative team? I'm just thinking about that asynchronous communication. And what does that look like?
1: So many different ways. Of course, you know, you've got tools like the one we're in right here. Um, One of the ones I've really enjoyed is a company called Mural, um, which is a whiteboarding company. It was the way it was started. But really, it's it's a space to hold space for rich collaboration, asynchronous and synchronous. And Slack and 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 Teams and those kind of things, but I'll tell you the, it's the intention. So, for instance, instead of hosting a meeting, so let's say you're falling behind in in uh, in in manufacturing and inventory, right? It's like, oh, you know, supply chain issues, etc. The head of manufacturing for your team would put up what I call a decision board. It's an asynchronous Google Doc or, or a SharePoint document, and it basically allows the, the person to write, okay, here's the problem. We're falling behind in manufacturing. Here's a potential solution. Here's some of the risks associated with that solution. And I'm sending this out to these 12 people. So the 12 people get it and they look at that and then they write in their, with their names next to it. They write their points of view. Well, I don't know if that's the right problem. I think the right problem we should do. They debate in the cloud. They debate in the cloud. And then, then at the end of the day, they're like, well, I think so. And should be involved. So now, instead of t- calling a meeting with twelve people, you got now you've got thirty-five people involved in this conversation. And then the originator looks at the document and says, "Okay, this is interesting. Well, I, there's some ideas here that are emerging that are very powerful. Let's have a meeting now to land the plane." But there's only six people that I need to have be in there. And what we generally find is the six people who should be in there. Weren't the original 12, maybe two of the original 12 need to be in there, but the other ones are coming L2s and L3s down into the organization or out into a different team. And it's so elegant, you know, um, anyway, go, go
0: no, 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 this is, this is very insightful. A lot of active takeaways here. I, I am wondering. When, by uh, the way,
1: all of these we captured in the book, what we're trying to do for you as a, as a viewer
0: is there are
1: 2000 people that have been brilliant with their various insights, but nobody had it all, all, all conquered, which we, we crowdsource these insights and innovations for leading in this radically adaptable world that we live in today. And, and with that, we put it all into this methodology and into this one book. So yeah, it's, I'm really excited to get it into people's hands.
0: Keith, I, I know we'll have this linked up in the show notes. Can you actually highlight what you guys are doing with the video series? Cause this is awesome. I, I wish more authors did what you guys are doing with this.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't see why they don't. I mean, Keon and I, my co-author, I have two co-authors. One's the real writer, um, Noel, and then Keon, who used to work for Peter Diamandis, uh, running his insights group for, um, uh, for innovative companies. The two of us uh, just sat down one night and said, okay, look, if somebody just read the book and then they said, for every chapter, what is the biggest takeaway that somebody could start with right now? what would that be? And that's what we did. We just did a 10 minute video for every chapter. What would the biggest takeaway that you would start acting on right now be around that? And so the idea is you can either just re you know, what do the video series as a, as a cliff notes of the, of the book, or you could do the video series as a learning journey with your team. So get your whole team, the book, right. And that's one of the things I think it's even on there. If you want to get your whole team, the book, and let us know that you're getting your whole team the book and using the video series with your team as a, as a learning thing, one of my coaches will jump on the phone with you and give you a little coaching on how to do that. So we look, swear to God, we really just want this to be extraordinarily successful for you and for you to see what's just happened, not as this disruptive thing that we got to crawl out of and go back to work. But we want you to leap forward. We want you to go forward to work, not back to work. That's been the mantra we have. We want to give you the tools to do that.
0: Yeah, Keith, what I appreciate so much about this is so many books you read it. And it's like, oh, that was an interesting insight. It's like, are you acting on it, right? You talk about you've you got to lead to action. I don't believe, I don't, and look, I, I don't believe in, in insights. I, or,
1: or, I believe in action. Everything's about action. Everything I've always done. So if you go from my very first book, to every one of my books, it's all full of very practical Tips. In fact, we've gone in our research institute, does what we call high return practices. Um, what we do is we we go and we gather uh, executives and leaders and entrepreneurs, and we we look at what they're doing. We're like, ooh, that looks like a best practice. That's interesting. And then we take that and we bring that executive into a small round table. And they a group of that person's peers, her peers would what we call bulletproof, the best practice. Stress test it, pull it apart, you know, amend it, augment it, make it more adaptable, but make it really clear, right? Boom, now we have a well-polished best practice. Then we take that and we insert it into a team. And we insert it into multiple teams. We had over 300 teams uh, involved in this kind of research. We insert it into the team and then the team, uh, and Then we and we measure both on outcomes, and on a diagnostic tool whether that practice was effective if we can measure success then it becomes what we call a high return practice so the things that are in the book are only the high return practices that are quantifiable
0: oh that's fantastic one of the things that seems to be coming out here is you you seem to be a courageous person right you even mentioned like taking action trying these different things being adaptable how has courage just gotten built up for you over the years I could Because I'm wondering, right? Like you talk about being and having a resilient well, organization. Probably, look for me. It's fear,
1: right? I was a. I recently did a um, a meditative story, which I'm really proud of. Um, maybe you can send it out to your folks. It was a story. Uh, it's called Meditative Stories. It's produced by a, a team called. Um, it's called, well, I, I anyway, Meditative Stories. You can see them online. Adam Grant did one. I did one. in Huffington, Reed Hoffman. So it's basically these stories where you come online and we tell you a backstory, but it's to music and you meditate and fall asleep to it. It's the only time I ever invite people to fall asleep to my speaking. Um, and, and, and for me, it was born from scarcity, fear, insecurity. I mean, you know, I grew up in a struggling household, you know, and there was, fear and anger and, and, and financial insecurity. We didn't have enough money to get to the, to get in town, you know, to Pittsburgh. I mean, it was, it was bad. And, um, and I just never wanted to be there again. Right. I wanted to run away as far as I could, as fast as I could. And, um, that fear created, you know, it was very interesting years ago when he was, I don't even think he was the Donald yet. Um, I sat next to Donald Trump at the Forbes mansion. I think I was the chief marketing officer of Starwood maybe at the time. And, um, and I sat next to him at a dinner and we were just talking about things and, you know, little, little backstory conversation. And he said something incredibly insightful, um, which I've always remembered um, whether you like him or not, because it was a powerful comment. He goes, listen, I said, Keith, your, your, your insecurity fed your success. I mean, that was the fuel to your engine," um, he said. "The greatest people uh, have deep insecurity. I don't think he's as humble to say that these days, but uh, he, you know, that wisdom I've always, you know, I've always appreciated, and it's true. Now, the question is: There's another friend of mine who wrote a book um, that always reminds me of, of this. It's like, you know, what got you here is not going to get you there. Um, and what we need to realize is that um, the insecurities of our past that, that, or whatever it is that made up who we are today, we've always got to ask ourselves with foresight and with agility, where are we going next? Who do we need to be next? And one of the things I do with executive teams is I engineer what I call behavioral engineering. How does an executive team engineer its behavior to go where it needs to go next? But you do that for yourself too. Each of us need to be behaviorally engineering. What, what behaviors don't serve us anymore? You know where do we need to go next? And I still have lots of them. I just got a, I got a spanking yesterday from one of my business partners about a behavior that I have that's not serving me,
0: but it's you know it served me so well for so long, and I know I still need to get rid of it. Yeah, Keith. Well, I'm wondering. I mean, you work with so many executives. You're the, you're the expert on this. What should that look like? That that personal growth journey for individuals. How should they be approaching that? So, first of all, you need to approach it with a lot of humility.
1: And you need to approach it with a recognition that, as I say to my executives, I said, you you have to recognize you're only 50% as good as you should be. If you soak that in, you're only 50% as good as you should be. Because if you recognize there's that much difference between where you are and where you should be, then you'll be a seeker. I'm a seeker. I've always been a seeker because I've I've been desiring of constantly growing and and changing and morphing and dynamic. now, how do you do that? Like, gosh, you know, I've been on a journey. I use spirituality. You know, I always feel that any, I will try anything, anything that will ground me more or, ri- or raise me higher, I will try. Yeah. And, you know, people like Ty Lopez talk about how powerful books are, of course, you know, to, the wisdom of so many people is available at your fingertips. Like, like the wisdom of 2000 executives is available in that book. I mean, that's crazy. That's crazy. Um, so books, of course, but, you know, going to, you know, I, I found date with destiny with Tony, you know, it was, it was a beautiful shift, um, landmark for him. Um, you know, with, it was a beautiful shift for me, uh, the pasana meditation sitting for 10 days in silence, um, uh, learning meditation, uh, plant medicine, um, doing an ayahuasca journey in, uh, in Costa Rica, um, where I really went deep and saw so much of my, my deeply rooted fears and insecurities, in my brain, with that chemical makeup of that plant, we started rewiring some of the fears and insecurities. Um, you know, there's a lot of, lot of studies being done around what psychedelics do for mental rewiring today, And I think we're going to have increasing wormholes. like nothing's better than deep meditation, but there's a little wormhole that you can accompany that with which is the use of a, of a medicine journey for four hours, you know, in the jungles of Peru that does it pretty well too. So that, that, that's, we all need to be constantly seeking, 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 just like I do for my body. You know, I do, I, I do hot yoga, soul cycle, Barry's boot camp, which I've been one of their oldest customers since 1998 um, plus my own trainer, my own meditation. I mean, we've got to be constantly tuning this machine.
0: This is such a critical critical insight. I hope people don't miss that. Right? Like, you need to be a seeker. You need to experiment. You need to try. You need to get out there on the fringes. That, that's one of the things I admire so much about your work. Right? Like, you were even starting to see some of these insights pre-COVID, and then you were able to capitalize and, and like really go where the puck is going. Once that landed, I'm wondering for you, like, what what are you seeing now? Where are key spidey sense starting to you know tickle a little bit, and, and thinking about what's going to happen here moving forward as well?
1: Well, I've got, I've got three books in development right now. Um, three <laughs> wait, development.
0: Wait, how, how do you go from, from eight years between them to now, what is it, it going to be three-ish in the next two plus years?
1: You're, you're, you're good with your wisdom in terms of the knowledge. You're right. I was about eight years in between my books um, and, you know, between Never Read Alone, Who's Got Your Back and Leading Without Authority. That was about the, the cadence. Um, you know, I, bottom line is this, I, <laughs> I never wanted to put something out there that I didn't think I really, that I, that I needed to share. I would not just put crank out. I knew I had friends who used to crank out a book a year. I'm like, how the fuck do you crank out a book a year? Like, what do you have to say? What, what do you have to say worthy of filling a book in one year? Uh, so I used to love going on these learning journeys. So my first book, Never Read Alone, it took me 35 years to write that, right? Cause that's your first book always takes a lifetime to write it. Um, and then, then, then who's got your back was eight years of research about, not on peripheral network relationships, but how do you go deep in a handful of people that really have your back? What does that look like? What does it mean? Then leading without authority was the belief that, that we are now living in networks of people. Productivity happens in networks. So how do you lead in networks? How do you lead without the authority assigned to you um, or given to you? And then what happened was I finally realized that while I've been researching, my research institute has been relatively small, you know, a few people in it, few, and, and, and there was, you know, these longer-term projects. What I learned is how to crowdsource insights. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I learned, like I learned as much reading the purpose chapter in my own book because it was, crowd, it was written by Hubert Jolie, the former CEO of Best Buy. Yeah, he's been he's on the, the show. Joubert's great, yeah. Um, Susan Sobit who is the former president at American Express, the two of them all about purpose, um, along with uh, some folks over at salesforce.com, which is a very purpose-driven organization. I let them have at the research, right? I provided a researcher. I provided a writer. And I provided three brilliant um, uh, three brilliant community leaders who were my faculty of the research institute. And they they went at it. And then I would just get blessed with periodically checking in I'm like that's interesting and i would ask the questions that the reader would ask hmm. but that doesn't I, I appreciate what you're saying but how would i do that like show me practically that doesn't fall right it's like so i was i was a symphony conductor for this for this work some of them like the chapter on collaboration and inclusion that was all me i mean, like that was all my work 20 years of cultivating high-performing teams and, and doing that and i loved writing that chapter and i worked with know, a couple of researchers and stuff, but that, that chapter was me, but some of these chapters I learned from. So that's how, now I'm sitting back and I'm like, wow, what am I curious about? Right. And and that's my next three book projects. And I've got, I've got co-writing. The other thing is co-writers like Keon. I wouldn't have been able to write this book if it wasn't for Keon. Keon, basically, you know, quarterback, the second half of the book, because he's so brilliant about, about business model transformation. He's basically a mini Peter Diamandis. Um, Business model transformation, workforce transformation, et cetera. So in looking at all of this, you know, like it was partnerships. And now I've literally got three major research projects going on with multiple faculty members, multiple partners, multiple writers. I'm having the time of my fucking life.
0: I mean, it's amazing. Keith, do you have any idea who the basketball player Shane Badier is? I don't. So he he was he was a pretty good player in the NBA, like 15 plus years. There's this great article on him that he essentially they they broke down all the data. He, he was the best teammate you possibly could have had in the NBA because the amount of support. I'm, I'm telling this story because the amount of humility you expressed there as a leader, the number of people who were part of this process for you, I hear so many authors, no, no, no this was my book, my idea, and there's so many people that contributed to that. I just wanted to highlight that because I love seeing that ooze out of you. I think that is so cool, so important. One thing you hit on there for a second, I just, I want to dive into real quick as we wrap up, is you mentioned those next three books. You're like, I'm curious about this stuff. Is that the thing you're going after? What sparks curiosity? And Keith, are there other factors you're looking to first?
1: Wait, are you saying, what's the question? What precipitated the topics of each? Or are you saying, is most of my focus books these days?
0: No, is most of your focus going after what's peaking yeah. your curiosity?
1: Mm, well, first of all, it always has. I'm just, <laughs> how do I say it? I'm just rich enough now that I can do it, with it. It's like I literally can source the resources for these things, right? So I have that ability. In the past, I was, you know, scrap and to self fund and those kind of things. Um, so, number one is that. Number two is uh, no, I mean, I still have a really deep, heartfelt need to transform the most important organizations in the world, right? The Deltas, the General Motors, the the IBMs, the Hewlett Packards. I mean, I really feel deeply about those intels. I feel so deeply about that because they still employ hundreds and thousands of millions of people that. From my perspective, I want to make sure that those families survive and thrive, right? Let's go back to that early days for me. Um, but what I've really started getting more invest invested in are the unicorn unicorns, because um, I'm deeply committed to cracking the code. These, these companies are, are breaking business models left and right. They're reinventing business models. And there were people like Tony Shea who reinvented business models and reinvented ways to think about humans and human capital. And so I'm now spending a lot of time um, cultivating unicorns and sunicorns to work with them to make sure that we reinvent the human capital model alongside the business models. That I'm most excited about. I'm doing that in my foundation in um, the thetonysheyaward.com, which anybody can go and participate in with me. If you go to the thetonysheyaward.com, it's really an invitation for any of you to co-create um, with uh, with us mm. in uh, in cracking the code of human capital in the workplace.
0: Once again, Keith, just super crystal clear on your purpose, creating those ripples out there in the world and the, and the the mark you want to leave out there. Two more quick ones here before we wrap up. I would love to know. I mean, a lot of people hear this. Wow, youngest CMO in the Fortune 500. You must have been incredibly talented back then. I'm wondering, looking back, what are you like? Man, I wish you had just doubled down on at that point in time. That took you longer. All, I don't it.
1: know how talented I was, um, but I did understand the power of relationships mm-hmm. and the men- power of mentorship. And having the CEO of the company as my mentor mm-hmm. um, gave me that permission. And you know, I had to catch up with the title to be to to earn it. To be honest, but you know, look, I, what I wish I knew back then is the power of partnership you know, I was married twice, um, uh, before today. And, um, one was a, you know, uh, a civil ceremony at Burning Man, but, um, but nonetheless, I had two long-term relationships of 10 years each. And I don't think until more recently that I really understand partnership. Um, I'm in, you know, I'm in a beautiful relationship today, you know, with a real partner and, I also feel like it's only been in the last few years that I really understood partnership in my own organization and I'm still learning because it's, you know, when you're scarcity oriented and you're scrapping for survival in your life, you don't think much about partnership. You should think about, you know, rugged individualism, getting the job done, et cetera. It's all on me. That's, that's not a way to live your life, living your life in partnership. I wish I had learned, learned that earlier on, but my mindset just wasn't there. It just really wasn't. I mean, I was, I was still that kid scared that I wouldn't be able to pay the rent like I was. And I went to Yale University, and there were summers where I lived in my Volkswagen GTI during while I was working in the summer because I couldn't afford to, to live in the city that I was working in. Um, I mean, that's crazy stuff. So that kind of scarcity mindset, it takes a while to dig out of that.
0: Keith, one of the things I appreciate so much is getting to learn from you, you know, with conversations like this, I'm wondering if you could do this long form conversation, anyone dead or alive, who, who would you love just sitting down with and just getting to explore different topics with?
1: Hmm. hmm. Well, you know what I have to say? Um, I I've been really blessed with pretty much, you know, anybody I really had that, if I were to name a name, you know, pretty much I would be able to have that, right. CEOs, country leaders, etc. cetera. Um, you know, to me, um, t- to me, I still deeply enjoy having these conversations richly with the people who are moving and shaking and creating. You know? like the unicorn CEOs, I love. I haven't. You know, in my neighbor here in Los Angeles is Disney. I haven't had much chance to meet with the new CEO of Disney. That would be an interesting. You know, and it, it'll happen. I want, to, I want to have those kind of conversations. I want to help serve people who are serving uh, the world and their employees. So it could be any of those that's awesome. i think share i think share would be fun to have a conversation with she's gone through an interesting life
0: (laughs) so keith the new book is out competing in the new world of work how radical adaptability separates the best from the rest anything else you want to leave the listeners with i know we're gonna have everything linked up in the show notes where they can purchase it and then also check out the video series
1: join join i mean you're gonna love the video series um that'll really help you get a jump start on this just get started today and do me a favor um you know, if you get the book now, and we're really pushing for the New York Times list. We'd love to to drive that again. Um, so put a review on Amazon uh, would be super uh, as you get the book. That'd be nice. Thank you. And, um, you know, share the share the insights with your friend. And and Sean, thank you so much. I really appreciated the time. And, and you really got me to a nice I've been doing it since five o'clock this morning today. Um, and I really have to say I've settled in. You have a nice I love the principle of this podcast. Thank you.
0: Awesome. Thank you. You guys made it to the end of another episode of what got you there. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.